Welcome to the For Love and Money podcast, the show where business and social purpose meet to inspire a movement for positive change. Here's your host, Carolyn Butler-Madden. Welcome to another episode of the For Love and Money podcast. Um, Today, I am interviewing Cassandra Treadwell. Cassandra is the co-founder and CEO of So They Can and co-founder and CEO of Essence of Humanity. Now, Cassandra's career background is medico-legal. She gained her master's degree in medical law and ethics from King's College, London University. While she has enjoyed living overseas, she chose to come back to Wanaka in New Zealand to raise her four children in the same nurturing community that she grew up in. She also loves living in New Zealand for the running, tramping, skiing and general outdoor lifestyle it enables. Cassandra spent a year in Argentina on student exchange when she was 16 and she spent time at an orphanage and there she was confronted um, for the first time with poverty in the developing world. The injustice affected her greatly and sculpted her future career choices and charity involvement. And as a new mother, this empathy took her back to the communities of East Africa that she'd become acquainted with while she was traveling and a drive to improve the lives of some of the world's most impoverished children whose families suffered deprivation and displacement due to political violence. Working in Africa now, Cass gained so much from the people she works with, as she describes in her TEDx talk, um, which we will include a link in the show notes. And um, I hope you do watch it because it's amazing and I hope we get to speak about it today. The community there has taught her to be grateful for what she has got rather than focus on what she has not got. The children have helped her to live in the present and enjoy the simple pleasures of life and the communities of Kenya and Tanzania have taught her the value of Ubuntu. I am because of you and the importance of global balance. Cass was very honoured to be nominated for the 2015 New Zealander of the Year and to be one of the final 10 people that were considered for this prestigious award. In 2018, she was a finalist in the New Zealand Women of Influence Awards. Cass, welcome to the For Love and Money podcast. Thank you so much for making time to chat to us today. Oh, thank you, Carolyn. It's lovely to be part of this. I think it's a great podcast. I particularly love the title. (laughs) Thank you very much. And um, yeah, when it comes to love, um, you know, I've I've learned a little bit about your story talking to you and doing some research. And clearly love runs deep through what you're doing. So I will open with the question that I ask all of my guests, um, thinking about purpose in your working life, does love have a role to play? Oh, yes, absolutely. What a great question. Um, Oh, yes, without a doubt. Um, I've just got back from three weeks on the ground in Africa. Actually, it makes it quite emotional you're even asking that question, but it's just that you're just surrounded by love from children and their parents and the school community who have, in our to our standards, no material wealth or assets, um, but the abundance of love that they share with me who they know, but I talked to of our team that they hadn't met before, so strangers to them at that point, um, was and always always does just is quite astounding and stays with me forever so yes 
to answer that question, love plays a tremendous and critical role um, for communities, giving it to us, but also are so they can sort of family internationally that um, sort of uh, shining that love back to them. And I mean, your organisations, they're, they're non-profit organisations, so um, mm. it won't surprise people that love runs deeply through that. Mm. But what do you think is the opportunity for for-profit business? You yourself understand mm. the power that love mm. can bring to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to your working life, to, to an organisation, to how you interact with people and how you approach opportunities and overcome hurdles. You know, I, I just love your thoughts on, you know, imagine if it, if it ran through business. Mm. Oh, the, there wouldn't be any poverty <laughs> if it ran through business. I think um, when um, a business is conscious of that relationship of love, then I think um that provides the purpose uh, as an example you mentioned essence of humanity which was a, as a social business that um i created with my friend stacy fraser who's a, a, a beautiful skincare developer and creator and we used um products from natural products from africa and mixed them with products from new zealand and created a natural skincare range um but the purpose of creating that business was to generate income for so they can. So it was driven, that business was and is driven by by love of humanity, really, the concept that we are one human race. And if we remember that constantly and um, uh, and remember that when others suffer, we suffer, then uh, you can't really go wrong. It's a, it's a good sort of driving guidance, I think. There's a beautiful African philosophy um, it's a Swahili word, it's Ubuntu, U-B-U-N-T-U. And Nelson Mandela would talk about Ubuntu as meaning I am because of you. And Archbishop Desmond Tutu spoke a lot about Ubuntu and he would define it as how our personal well-being is deeply connected to the well-being of others. Um, it's just beautiful how that concept of one human race is summed up in, in one Swahili word and it probably is demonstrative of, of their attitude to life. Um, but yes, to answer your question, I think if a love for humanity and others um, was an integral part of all businesses, then yeah, there wouldn't be any poverty in the world, I believe. This idea of Ubuntu um, is is incredibly powerful. And I know through your, TED, uh, your TEDx talk, you shared stories that really brought it to life. Um, yeah, I just how how do you think uh, today, as we um, live in a time where this movement of purpose-led business is mm. growing? I I've actually just last week attended the Purpose Conference, and um, two days, and oh my god, it just it just made me understand now um, to my extreme happiness that. The movement is unstoppable. Oh, um, that's exciting. I, honestly, it is the innovation, the the drive, the passion of what I'm seeing out there from businesses that are, mm-hmm. you know, um, starting with the problem they want to solve and then building a business around it. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Um, and this idea mm-hmm. of Ubuntu is such, you know, it's such a human concept. Um mm-hmm. It's such a simple concept, but it is so incredibly powerful. 
do you have any thoughts on, you know, how um, people can connect to that more? Um, how you can bring that idea to life to people as we go through this time, this shift in time where purpose mm. in business is threading its way through? Yeah, that's a really important question. I'm so glad to hear you use that word unstoppable. Um, I think there is a younger generation particularly that have recognised and felt the sense of happiness that comes from a purpose-driven business and career. And I think the the nod that in the past businesses have had to sort of tick in a box almost of we'll give 2% of our profits isn't enough for that generation. So I think they are, as you say, creating businesses to solve problems. And it is incredibly exciting. And I think it's the way forward um, for the problems themselves, but also for individuals to be happy. And I've had so many, I call them lessons from my Ubuntu classroom of Africa. Um, these people, the communities that we work with on the ground, so we work, we have 33,000 children that we support across our 47 schools. Um, and if you combine that with our empowerment programs of microfinance for women and clinics and community health and child wellbeing, it's 45,000 people that we work with. Um, so I've had many opportunities with that those amount of people, people to really understand the concept of Ubuntu and get those um, those lessons from my classroom of Africa. And uh, the first one was actually when I first went to find a project to get involved in uh, back in, in 2009, and it was just after the Kenyan election violence, which was very analogous to the Rwandan genocide. Um, and it was ironic because what triggered me to go to Africa I, was I watched the movie uh, Hotel Rwanda but I, I ended up in Africa in 2009. I heard about all these IDPs or internally displaced persons camps as they were referred to. And they were Kenyan refugees, so refugees in United Nations tents and refugee camps, but they were Kenyan residents. Um, so I went to visit a number of these refugee camps and they were all pretty horrendous. Um, there was a lot of chaos. And at one camp, um, this woman came up to me and she was just watching me and I'd spent a few days amongst these IDP camps and they're, they're, you know, fairly emotionally and physically hard. And she saw me and she was holding her baby, which was the same age as my little Rocco that I'd left at home. So about eight months old. And uh, she just suggested for me to come into her tent. And, uh, and I did. And I, she handed me her baby and for a cuddle. And I just had 10 minutes of calm from all the chaos outside in this refugee camp. And my Swahili is embarrassingly bad. And she didn't speak English, obviously. And we sat on the dirt floor of her tent. But we just had this kind of lovely moment between two mothers. And when I left, someone asked me, um, do you know her story? And I didn't. And they said that during that 2007 election violence, sort of uh, 18, 12 months prior, her husband and children who had been murdered and she was raped and the baby that I was holding was a result of that rape. But the lesson that I hold forever from that story for me was when I was with her, I gestured and asked her the name of her baby and she told me that she'd named her baby Miracle. And it just astounds me even today. I've, I, you know, I tell that story a few times and it is in my TEDx, but the fact that she had the courage and the determination and the strength after all she went to, to literally turn what I would have chosen, because it is a choice, I believe, to see as, as, a, as a disaster into, into literally a miracle. And um, 
I just admire that strength and courage to, to, to choose an attitude on life. So that was my first Ubuntu lesson. And since then, I've just had so many. They, um, they have no material wealth, the communities we work with, but they have so much emotional wealth and they teach me to be grateful, as you said, for what I've got and not focus on what I don't have. I think that's a bit of an affliction we have in the West. We focus on what we don't have, um, whereas the happiness you get from focusing on what you do is quite extreme. So they live in the moment more than we do here. Um, they have this incredible sense of community. They don't have any social welfare systems, so they have to rely on each other. Again, that one human race reliance on each other. Um, and from that the dancing and celebrating life, which they just there's just so much more joy there than we have here because we're so isolated and fixated on our own thing. So that sense of community brings them more joy. And then also this concept of death, they very they live very closely to death. And I think there's something in that as well. They um they wake up and are grateful to be alive because their neighbor might not have woken up alive. And so they embrace the moment and the day and the joy and the celebration. And it's just good for us. They're just really good for, for our emotional health. And I think there's a really beautiful reciprocal relationship between us sharing our material wealth and then them teaching us how to live better. <laughs> so I'm not Thank sure you. Thank you for sharing that story. Um, and, you know, about the baby called Miracle. It's an incredible story. And for me, as I listened to it, it just it makes me realise how far we in the West have gone from what really matters within the human condition. And I know that is mm. the thing that's driving you. It's it's all about mm. that connection and the reciprocity of giving, mm. you know, the value of giving not just to the people but um, but to the person that's giving. Um, I'd, I'd love you, Cass. I'd love to, sorry to interrupt, but I would love to offline talk to you more about that because I'd, I, I did that TEDx talk like six or seven years ago I've never watched it I'm too embarrassed to watch it but oh you've um, got to watch it it's, a, <laughs> it's amazing watching I've watched it twice now and it's like oh I actually need to go through it again because there are just truth bombs in there oh that's nice to hear I must have I'm too scared to watch it so that's nice to hear but I made a, a real sort of commitment to myself way back then to do exactly what you've asked me what is the answer to bringing that sense of Ubuntu to to the Western developed world. And I don't feel like I've done it yet. And so maybe you can help me in that regard. We, you know, we are starting a few sort of campaigns, which hopefully brings our communities into the world of us here. Um, so, you know, if we, ideally I'd take everyone to Africa, but we can't. So hopefully through, you know, short videos and connections and pieces like that, we can sort of bring that world and that the classroom of Africa back here, but I don't feel like I've nailed it yet. So all suggestions I greatly appreciate from you. I'd, yeah, I'd love to continue talking to you and, and um, mm. putting our heads together as to how we do that. Obviously, this podcast is one way we can do that. And um, and and I'm sure there, well, there, there are no doubt many, many more ways. Um, before we get into... Um, so they can and your campaign which is really really interesting so you know i urge people to listen all the way through because um what cass is doing is absolutely incredible and by the way the numbers you just talked about the forty-five thousand people that you work with can i that is just incredible absolutely incredible so congratulations um but can you share with our listeners just just 
um, can you share your journey? You know, what has brought you to this point? You've touched on a few things, but if you could just give us the sort of overall picture, that would be amazing. Yeah, sure. So um, as you mentioned, my background's, I've got I'm no experience in the development field at all, but my background is um, law and medicine. So I did my law degree and then I went to London and did a master's in medical law and ethics. So it was, I loved it. Half of us were lawyers and half were doctors. Um, yeah, just, just really realized sort of the disjunct between the two professions and how we could get them to work closer together. So anyway, I then moved into the medical law field. I'd work in hospitals um, actually on site and I would be working in ICU or new birth tech, not on the new um, NICU ward around sort of both start of life and end of life and the medical legal issues around that, um, trying to protect some of our doctors who are always acting in the best interests of the patients from that sort of gap between the law and, and medicine. So I loved it, really loved it. Um, but I moved from New Zealand where I'm from, where I worked in, in the hospitals to Sydney and thinking I could do the same medical legal work uh, in-house in hospitals but they actually quickly, I quickly learned that you outsource all your medical legal work to big law firms um, and there's not a space in the, within the hospitals over in Australia. So I didn't want to go back to the big law firms. I had done some big commercial law when I first graduated from, from university and it wasn't for me. Um, so I kind of took that pause and I was pregnant with our third child to actually think about what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and I that's when I watched the movie Hotel Rwanda in the middle of the night when I was feeding one of my children and um, said to myself, right, I have to do something to to probably just alleviate the guilt I felt about the atrocities that are allowed to go on around the world. So I took myself off to beautiful Balmoral Beach in Sydney the next morning and went for my run and just sort of said, I have to keep running till I come up with some sort of solution. So um, during that run, uh, I thought of the concept of what we call eat so they can, which was I'd hold a global dinner party so friends that I had dotted around the world at that point, and I said to them, well, can you all just hold a dinner party on the same night and ask people to bring a donation rather than food? And we raised $25,000 from that incredibly. So I took wow. that money. Yeah, it, was, it blew me away, actually. And I took that to Africa looking for a project. I had backpacked through Africa immediately after I graduated from university. So I knew some areas and I knew a woman in, um, in Nairobi and so she and I went to visit, as I mentioned, these IDP camps and one of, so they were all horrendous, but at the end of one long day, um, there was, I went to the pipeline IDP camp in Nakuru, which is two and a half hours north of Nairobi. And uh, they didn't ask for food or money like all the others had, understandably, because they were desperate. They asked me to meet with their committee and they had in this IDP camp of six and a half thousand people living on 16 acres of land, they had created a committee of 47 people, each representing the 47 different tribes in Kenya. So the lawyer in me and the justice value in me suddenly went, oh, I really like that concept. So I went into this sort of um, tin shed full of chickens and people and um, this, this, this committee were at the head of, of this kind of congregation and they had this beautiful plan mapped out for someone. They would, they had the resilience that is another lesson I've learned from, from this community. Um, and they were waiting patiently and they sort of said, can you build us a school? Can you educate, educate our children? And they talked about how 
So 600,000 Kenyans had fled from the west of Kenya to the east during this election violence in 2007. And what happened, to backtrack a little bit, that violence occurs because a week before the 2007 elections, one tribe comes down and looks to massacre another tribe so that they're literally not around to vote. Oh, God. Very analogous to the Rwandan genocide sort of situation. And when I sat with this committee, uh, their chairperson, Paul, said to me, we believe education is the answer because it breaks the poverty cycle, which I'd heard and understood. But he went that step further and said, um, education enables human beings to make good choices. And I was really fascinated by that. And he later explained to me the detail of what he meant by that is that it's horrific, but when you're desperate and starving and your kids are dying, you might take the $10 to join a massacre. And so if you're educated and have choices, you you won't do that. Um, so I was fascinated by that and I, I was impressed by them. And they then walked me to a five-acre block of land, just two kilometres um, away from the IDP camp and they said we know that this area is designated by the um, uh, Ministry of Education to be a public school can you convince them that you'll work with us to build a school for our children here so that's kind of how it all started and after you know a long time on a cold government corridor floor I was allowed to go and see the regional education officer and I did manage to um, convince them that we would build um, a school public school we wanted to, always wanted to work in the government system uh, and not you know steal the land and build a house for ourselves with a swimming pool and uh, it started from them so that's when we started um, and at this point I was joined by my very good friend Kerry um, Chittenden in Sydney who was my neighbour uh, and co-founder so then we worked with local engineers and builders and in 2010 we opened Aberdeen Rangers Primary School um, in May to our first 120 little four-year-olds preschoolers and then every year after that, we would come back, we'd fundraise um, back in Australia and, and New Zealand. And then we would build another three classrooms and bump them all up until by 2010, we had a full school, which now um, graduates 1,200 students a year. And halfway through this process, of course, we were working closely with Aberdeer. And then we decided to change the model from being so capital construction heavy to working with the government schools and focusing on what goes on inside the classrooms. So then we started partnering with other government schools that were already built, but very dilapidated. Um, not enough teachers, not enough classrooms. The teachers needed upskilling. The head teachers needed training. The parent community needed engagement. So now we have 47 schools across Kenya and Tanzania, government schools, that we do construction work with and other 10 education projects that we put into those schools. Things like learning, uh, reading, writing and arithmetic, the basics, but also really important projects like keeping girls in school. So 85% of our girls um, suffer female genital cutting and get sold before they're 10 years old as the fourth or fifth wife to a 65-year-old man sort of thing. Um so we work very closely with the with the local community to to get our children sent to school and keep them in school. And then also just things like My Voice is a project. So it's about human rights, so the rights of the boy and the girl, that they, they're not um, the property of their fathers and brothers, that they don't have to be sold. And then also teacher improvement, teacher development, school board of management, um, training, all that kind of stuff. So, and then, and then in 2012, we actually went to Tanzania and um, and discovered that the 
quality of government teachers there isn't as good as in Kenya. So we needed to solve the teaching issue. So we built a teacher's training college from scratch, which is now the top performing teacher's college in the whole of Tanzania, public and private. And um, that graduates about uh, 200 teachers into the Tanzanian public school system each year. So that's I'm, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ask you to pause there for a moment because Cass, you make it sound <laughs> you make it sound so simple, right? <laughs> and and I just want to go back when when that when that committee asked you to build a school, what was your initial reaction to that? Yeah, that's such a good question. You pick up on interesting things. You know me so well. Um, I've thought about that a lot. Sometimes people say to me. Um, how did you decide whether you would or not? And I remember leaving that tin shed and walk. It was getting dark and walking back through this IDP camp. And the children are amazing. They'll run up to you. That you have about four children off each arm, and they're smiling and laughing. But they're in bare feet. It's cold. It's quite high the altitude in Nakuru, so it was getting cold. They've got bare feet, shorts, ripped shirts on. It's getting dark and it's a bit scary there's lots of people around but they're still laughing and smiling and holding my hand and I got in my car and drove off and I'm trying to answer your question because there was I realized when I got in my car and let go of those children's hands that there was never any choice you know I had the ability to at least try to provide me to provide them what they'd asked me for so at that point I didn't feel there was a choice really. And I'm glad I was excited as well. I was really excited because I felt that I'd found what I had gone over there to look for, which was um, a sustainable um, sort of deep seated way to break the poverty cycle for generations. Um, And I had found a community that were prepared to work hard to do that with me. And I really wanted to work in the government system so that they had the skin in the game and it was it was their project. So I was excited. Um, there wasn't a decision to make. When you're in that environment and you're walking through the mud and you can get in the car and drive to a, a clean bed, um, you know, man, of course you do what you can. But yes, I went looking for something. And I started off my three weeks there. I started off with this um, sort of friend I knew from my backpacking days going to orphanages and, and schools um in the Nairobi slums saying what do you need because I was looking for a project um and to spend the 25,000 we'd we'd raised and these schools and orphanages would say they'd give me a shopping list and I'd go into town and I'd buy the blankets and the and the pots and the pots and pans and the beans and I'd come back and I'd sort of say how long will this last and they'll say thank you that's going to last a whole month and I'd go oh that's just so where's the sustainability to that so I was really grateful to have heard about these IDPs and then to go and meet them and then to come up with a, a plan that was ticked all my boxes of working with the community, working with the government, um, having a sustainable exit strategy um, and actually changing the lives of those children so that they would never have to ask again. Enjoying the podcast? If you're looking for more inspiration, head to our website, thecauseeffect.com.au for more resources on how you can start using your business as a force for good. Or buy the For Love and Money book. Every copy sold allows us to protect one square metre of rainforest. Help us save 10,000 square metres by 2025. 
there are a couple of things I want to pick up there. I mean, you talked about um, how seeing that movie Hotel Rwanda, you know, that's what actually just just challenged you and got you to um, what did you say when you went for the run, run, run till you solved the problem. Yeah. Um, which is yeah. really interesting because a, a, another guest of mine, um, James Bartle from Outland Denim, he started Outland Denim, um, which which employs um, Cambodian. Actually, it's extended to beyond Cambodian women, but to um, you know keep them in safety from the sex trafficking trade, mm-hmm. and to educate them and give them a living wage and. Um, give them skills and so forth but that actually started when he saw the movie Taken um, um, with Liam Neeson so it's it's really interesting because many of us go to movies many of us are appalled at what we see and you know want to do something but for you and James um, Mm -hmm. you know you actually did and that's amazing and I want to congratulate you and thank you for that, but also highlight um, the fact that you did and you've built something significant out of it. And and that takes me to the second um, point I want to explore is how, you know, you had no experience in this. How did you, how did you, <laughs> how did you do it? I don't know how you're going to answer this, but how did you do it? I assume it was building community around you, but yeah. And that's, um, I, I'm very um, conscious and embarrassed about people congratulating me because actually my, I was going to say only, but that sounds, but my one strength is I'm, I gather good people around me. So, um, and that's why I feel embarrassed when people, you know, congratulate me because I, I'm really a very small cog in this whole so they can family and um creation so great question so as, as I mentioned earlier when I had gone and met these IDPs I came back and I asked my good friend Kerry to, to to come back with me and get involved so Kerry is an incredible event manager that's her career and she had run events at the Olympics and so then we started doing really cool fundraisers and raising lots more money um she's also a superb project manager so she is great with construction and details and all the spreadsheets and things that I'm terrible at. Um, Then we hired great staff. We had a very um, clear plan. I I personally, I wanted to have 100% localized community on the ground. So I wanted them to be 100% Kenyan and Tanzanian um, team on the ground. And probably about seven years ago, we achieved that. So what we started doing is we would put an expat and a local into the same role. So country manager, um, for example, and they would shadow each other. So our expat would educate and train up our local on what we needed back here to raise the money. So we needed fairly quick responses to our emails. We needed um, timely turning up to meetings. We needed good photos, that kind of stuff. And then in turn, our local would educate our expat on what was needed for that role to work in that country. So the government connections, the fact that you do sit in in meetings for three and a half hours and hear about everyone's family for the first two hours before you get to the business. So they taught us a lot in in those regards. And then we could just slowly exit the expat and the local stayed. And that has worked really, really well. I have an incredible team on the ground. 
Um, that was one of the highlights for me in my last trip that I've just got back from was the fact that I haven't been able to get over there for two years because of COVID. And I was um, wondering what everything would look like. And it surpassed all my expectations because we didn't have to pull any expats out. Nothing stopped. In fact, we just expanded our development work into COVID prevention and security and safety work. Um, but you know, I was there two years ago and I'd go to our schools and there are a number of children there. But one of our big goals is getting more children coming to school and the community sensitized to the importance of education. This trip, I would turn up at our schools and there'd be 600 or so parents turning up and surrounding the car. And, you know, I'd get out of the car and they surround you and throw beads and cloaks all over in blankets. And then they sing and dance you up to the school, which is, could be a kilometer away. And you're singing and dancing for 10 minutes with them. And then they will sit and um, have this whole school community of 600 to 800 people and children telling you the impact that my local team had made over the last two years to them. It was incredible and I'm incredibly proud of them. So the answer to your question is I, I didn't really have to have a lot of experience. I just had to be uh, good at recruiting our initial people. And then they now in turn, our country managers, um, Bonnie Boniface in Kenya and Rosalind in Tanzania, they are amazing at recruiting exceptional staff. And um, we don't have to do it often because they've stayed with us. They're loyal. The other thing I love about our, our people on the ground, our team, our managers on the ground and our whole team is that we made a decision to go into a third community called East Pocot about six years ago now, and it is the poorest county out of uh, 369 counties in the whole of East Africa, which is unusual because Kenya is relatively wealthy compared to, say, Malawi, which is in East Africa. So you would see you see these United Nations charts, which have um, from a poverty level, all the all the counties in Malawi and um, Mozambique, for example, are, are, are listed. And then right at the bottom, um, but uh, sorry, right at the top of that is is East Pocot in Kenya. Um, and it's like the Wild West. Uh, it's it's an incredibly harsh, pastoral, uh, environmentally tough place to live. But it's also suffers from um, cattle raiding. So the tribes, the the boys, when they're getting to 13 or 14, they'll go overnight and raid cattle to get some cattle for the dowry to, to marry a girl, for example. And it causes a lot of unrest and the military get called in. So it can be quite dangerous, um, is my point there. So I said to my team before I went up there, I said, look, I come here twice a year. You're the ones that are going to be on the cold face. Are you sure you want to go in there? It's it's no other NGOs, NGOs are really in there. And they just all said, this is what we're here for, Cass. This is what the purpose driven that you talk about, Carolyn. This is why we're it. So they can because we can go to the places that need us that others don't go to. And it was quite a defining moment for me of the uh, incredible team that I'm lucky enough to have. So yeah. That's amazing. And, you know, your your strength, your superpower, <laughs> gathering people around you. Um, I might rephrase that as building movements to create mm. change, Ooh, you know, like positive that. change. Um, I do like that. <laughs> yeah, I, honestly, I feel, I, I, I think it's so important that you don't underplay that because it's a beacon for people who don't necessarily have skills to build schools or whatever it may be um, but it's knowing this is what I'm good at and mm. this is what I can do this this is how I can use that strength and that superpower to create something meaningful 
you know, some some change. And I want mm. to really highlight that to our listeners because I feel like so many people feel disempowered. They want they want to do something, but it's like, what can I do? I don't yeah. have the skills. I don't have the capability. And it's a theme that I believe is so important. And and I mentioned the Purpose Conference. Um, and story after story from the Purpose Conference was from founders of business, of businesses in categories that they had no experience in. Um, and, you know, you presume they thought no skills suitable for that experience, but it was mm. the problem that they were solving that was the driver and the ability to, um, yeah, um, bring in experts and um, find their way through, which is exactly what you've done. So I think that's that's a huge thing to highlight. And I think that's something. And I something... think, Carolyn, you're, you're so right and it's so important and I would absolutely want that message to get out there. The most powerful component or tool that I look for if people are coming want to be involved in what we're doing um, is just passion and commitment. Um, I have people with PhDs in international development sending me CVs and I sort of say, how much time have you had on the ground? Or what do you, you know, do you believe in this? Or are you prepared to go this extra mile? And I would take the person that was passionate over the PhD in international development any day. Um, but I do know what you're saying about it. it's overwhelming the amount of need and I feel particularly from COVID and uh, unfortunately I feel we've gone, gone back to that sort of nationalistic locked in a bit, which is the opposite of what the world needs, which is the whole global perspective of one human race working together. But I think that it's made people scared about not knowing how to help. And it is overwhelming. I, I personally remember um, a, a terrible story and footage I saw on the news a number of years ago from Iraq about girls being you know, in a, in a cage taken through the streets and they were about to get killed. It was just a horrible, it was just a horrible graphic that just totally rocked me. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help them. Um, and I think what what I want So They Can To Be About is providing an opportunity and a family for people to get involved so that they feel that there is uh, some solution to the horrors and the atrocities in the world and that's what I do I, I I hear those stories in Iraq or things that I'm not involved in and I, I'll zoom some of our children on the ground or if I'm over there I'll go and sit in, in, in one of our schools and just be surrounded by those children going we're doing something we're doing something to help in the world and and I welcome anyone to to, to reach out to me and go I don't know how I can help but I want to I I before starting so they can I went to a number of NGOs and said, look, I'm, I don't have any skills. I'm just a lawyer. And can I can I help in any way? And they all sort of said, no, but would welcome your money. I mean, I understand that, but I don't, well, I understand that was their perspective. I don't really understand it because it definitely takes a village. So I welcome anyone that that feels they could add some value, whether it's financially or whether it's, you know, do you know that you could get water balls from this place or I'm happy to help you run a fundraiser or I'm happy to come and just meet the children and spend some time with them. So yeah, I, uh, I feel it's important for, for purpose-driven businesses or NGOs to, to welcome everyone and um, make them realize that you don't have to be specialists in this area. You just have to be passionate. Absolutely. Absolutely. And everyone can do something, whether it's doing something yourself with your skills or whether it's giving money. And I, I do want to 
Um, I do want you to tell us about the campaign you're about to launch because I think it's an, a brilliant campaign and it just makes it so easy. But before we do, I'd like you to give some context to it with, um, you know, you, you talk about um, the real value of giving as providing connection mm -hmm. to people. And I think that is such a powerful concept. So I'd just love you to talk about that a bit if you can. Yeah, I was on a bit of, I am on a bit of a mission and it's part of my TED Talks to change the perception and definition of charity from what I believe it is today, which can be seen as the great white savior going in to save these poor people out of pity to what it truly is, which is a reciprocal exchange and partnership of as I said before emotional and material wealth and this was uh, uh, it, it triggered in me because uh, we, we started a children's village because I went to a dump site early on rubbish dump ironically called the Hilton rubbish dump I did approach them for funding <laughs> um, and there were thousands of people well thousand over a thousand children living off this rubbish dump in, in Nakuru in Kenya and they are orphaned and vulnerable ch children orphaned from either that um, 2007 Ken Kenyan elections or HIV and um, the first time I went in there I was challenged to go in there by a local I love as again their determination who came to me and said you talk about supporting the poorest of children have you ever been to our local rubbish dump and I hadn't so I went up there and I met this I saw this boy scavenging through the, the rubbish. So they live in the rubbish dump. They, they stay burrow in at night to stay, stay warm amongst needles and rubbish. And it's a horrendous place that no one should have to see, let alone a child live in. Um, but they try and make some money out of finding what they can in the rubbish dump and selling it. Um, but anyway, so this boy was trying to find things in the rubbish. And I went up to him and I, I uh, said hi. And um, I put my hand out to shake his hand. And uh, he went to shake my hand and then he looked at his hand and then he pulled it away and he said the words Niona Haya in Swahili. And I didn't know what they meant at the time. But when I be went back later, um, I asked someone, what does Niona Haya mean? And they looked at me and said, it means I'm so embarrassed. And oh, again, today, it just rocks me. This was years ago, but I remember thinking how incredibly wrong that is that here Daniel is living in a rubbish dump while I took his photo with a camera that probably would have fed him for a year I could go back home to, to the, the warmth and security and love that I have from, from my four children and family. And he had to stay there and live in that horrendous rubbish dump. Um, and it just made me feel that it's, he, he, he felt that it was this great white savior coming in and we're supposed to support him out of pity, which is just wrong. Um, and I think the sooner that we all realize that charity is a two-way street and we will you get more out of it through the connection with these communities communities than you will give then we can solve the issue of poverty I mean I, I take donors over that have an awful lot of material wealth and without a doubt by day two they will all say to me what is the story these people are happier than me and my community at home mm. and I firmly believe that is because they are connected to their community. They believe in this concept of Ubuntu. They're grateful for what they have got. They live in the present moment and they look after each other. They see themselves as part of one human race um, and they know when someone else suffers, they will suffer. So they look after them to make sure that they don't. Um, and I saw that with my daughter. I took my 14 year old into the rubbish dump once, my little daughter Mia and 
she was incredibly strong and brave. And then halfway through, she just broke down and, um, and the community in that rubbish dump came out and they were offering her their incredibly precious cups of water. And they brought a little stool out for her to sit down on. They were rubbing her back and it was an Ubuntu lesson. That was a massive one because I looked at them and went, Mia's crying. My little 14 year old is crying. They know she can leave and be fine, but they, they, I could see the Mia's pain etched on their faces and they needed her to be better so that they could feel better. And I just thought we all need to live like that. And it doesn't matter that they're miles away and that we don't see them every day. They're out there and um, any little thing we can all do to help and connect with them, we're going to really um, grow from and it's going to enrich us. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a very thank you. Way. Thank you for sharing those stories. Um, yeah, I, it feels like we've, um, Ubuntu is a lesson um, mm -hmm. that that we all need to learn from because I think it goes back to what we're here for um, mm -hmm. and we've lost sight of that. But um, I'd and love you to... A, sorry, I just, I think there's a, and I've done a study on it, There's a, and there's lots of studies out there, but there's a correlation that question of how much is enough is really important. How much is enough money for us? And it's different for everyone. And I absolutely respect every everyone's um, level on that, provided they actually ask the question. Because I think that there is a real correlation between consuming too much wealth and then we get bigger houses with bigger fences and we dislocate ourselves from the community. Um, and I think we then lose that connection and I think that's part of the problem so if we could all work out how much was enough for us and give the rest away to something that you're passionate about whether that's environment animals people you'll be happier for it I firmly believe that that's a brilliant philosophy and doing that intentionally rather than having a goal and as soon as you get there having the next goal and the next goal of material wealth is what just keeps us in this cycle of disconnection really and busyness um please share with us your um, one in a million campaign because I'd, I'd just love our listeners to be able to take action from this and it is so easy and so yeah brilliant just please go ahead Cass thanks Carolyn um so I'm constantly thinking of ways to make so they can sustainable both from a program implementation point of view and from a fundraising point of view I feel like I've I feel like because of an amazing team on the ground um, and our monitoring evaluation, we have in our communities, I'm I'm feel like I could die tomorrow and the implementation would continue on. But I haven't cracked the fundraising. It won't continue on without the fundraising. Both sides of our business need each other. So I'm always, you know, there's lots of different ways you can get involved um, from, in a fundraising point of view. We have high net worth donors that give money. We have child sponsors that give money, um, turning up to um, what we call our one human race in March, where you run, walk, swim 85 kilometers over the month of March to support the 85% of our girls that get cut and sold into marriage. Um, but what we're about to launch is called One in a Million. Uh, it's kind of like that concept of, are you one in a million to support um, our children over there as well and it's asking people to just give a dollar a month so trying to create a very uh, a non-financial barrier basically um, we're targeting our communities in Africa as well I'd love to be the first NGO that got substantial funds out of Africa so it will enable us to move from currently our 47 schools and parent 33,000 children in those schools to go to 500 schools empowering 400,000 children. 
Wow. And because it's such sticky money, I don't know if anyone would stop that annual payment of $12 a month. Then we can rely on it. We can budget for it. We can, uh, you know, program plan for three years in advance. We can take on new schools whilst we just grow to, to hopefully 10 million, you know, um, people. So that's the fundraising side of it. But it's also to try and solve this this goal I had to bring that concept of Ubuntu to our to our Western community. So the connection, I really wanted to connect people, um, as we've talked about. So if you sign up to One in a Million, you will become part of the One in a Million slash One Human Race community, if so they can. So you can opt in or out to how much um, interaction you have. Um, but generally, we would have uh, four texts or little videos um, that you'll be sent which is nothing more than a minute or two minutes but just that you'll get pinged every now and then if you sign up for it if you want it and you'll get a gorgeous video from the ground of some kids dancing or a woman who has just been empowered through our microfinance or something that just takes you out of your everyday detail of the hard slog to live in the present moment um, remember Ubuntu remember the connection and just to realize what you've invested in by becoming part of that one in a million community. So it's hopefully as well going to help us back here remember the Ubuntu African classroom lessons that I'm lucky enough to have. So that's the concept of one in a that's million. That's amazing. And we have um, Neil Finn from Crowded House as one of our ambassadors. Um, he's an incredible ambassador. He's been with us for about 10 years now. He's an amazing human being and he, along with Crowded House, have written a song to launch One in a Million for us, which will be on their album next year. Um, and so hopefully we can get as much traction as possible. But yeah, if anyone out there has got ideas of how to spread or purpose businesses and databases that they'd be happy to share it to help us get to our goal, that would be absolutely incredible. I love it. I love it. And um, when, when are you launching this campaign? So we're officially launching it on the 12th of November at our global dinner party. Um, however, it'll take some time to get to that many people. So it's it will always be there. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. So look, um, this, this podcast is being recorded um, at the end of October. Um, so the campaign will be live when it goes to air and we'll include links in the show notes. I will be signing up and I'll be sharing it amongst friends, family, network, um, whatever I can. I, I love what you're doing, Cass. Thank you so much um, for all you're doing in bringing Ubuntu to the Western world. I know this conversation is one that I'm going to carry with me um, for a long time. And thank you. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, please just email me. It's Cassandra at so they can.org. Wonderful. Cass, I feel like we've only just scratched the surface <laughs> and um, and maybe down the track I can I can convince you to come back on for a further chat. But thank you so much. I know you've got to rush off. So thank you for taking the time and sharing your wisdom with us today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the For Love and Money podcast. If you'd like to take a deeper dive into the purpose movement, visit us at thecauseeffect.com.au. And remember, doing good is good for business. So if you're not doing good, then what are you doing? <laughs>